You are listening to Exploring Tiger Style, a series of conversations hosted by Huntington Manager of Curriculum and Instruction, Regine Vital. These insightful talks include perspectives from the playwright, director, actors, local community members, and scholars. This is our first episode called From Stage to Podcast, This Tiger Changes Its Style. Hi everyone, I'm Regine Vital. I'm so glad you're here. Let's start by having everyone introduce themselves and say where they're recording from. Hi, this is Mike Liu, playwright recording from Brooklyn. Hey, it's Moritz von Stolmegel and I'm the director for Tiger Style, recording from Hudson, New York. Hi everybody, this is John Roman Schneider. I'm playing Albert and I'm recording from Brooklyn. Hi, this is Nate Miller, also recording from Brooklyn. I play Russ the Bus and Reggie and the Customs Guy. Amazing. So the first question I'd like to ask is, um, I introduce this by saying um, Tiger Style, an audio play. And this is going to be distributed as a podcast, but I'm wondering if there is a distinction that feels important about calling this an audio play rather than just a podcast. Because podcasts have become so popular, and also because COVID won't allow us to be all in the same room and the same building, there's been this reemergence of audio drama. It's exciting to call it an audio play because you can create a whole world just by the sound uh, that you're creating, by uh, playing into the audience's imagination of what they think they're seeing uh, and allowing them in some ways and their imaginations to be a participant in the story that we're telling. I mean, one thing that I will say is that uh, when I got approached about doing this, I had to reconceive uh, the play and think through how are you receiving information, um, like what was uh, explicitly visual about the play and how would I adapt that? So I think that like it is a slightly different genre and it's been interesting to refilter the play through that lens. The theater being such a visual medium and not just uh like film and TV, you know, you've got the screen and you've got anything that happens on that screen is visible. Theater is so much bigger so that you can, whatever that visual story you're telling can be seen by 500 or a thousand people all the way in the back row. It was interesting to lose that element, uh, the visual element, and have to put that all into your vocal performance and also rely on the collaborative effort of all of our amazing sound designers and post-production people so that we can make everything happen in the audience's imagination via what they're hearing. Sort of another thing uh, formally that was different was that we didn't get to hear audience reaction in real time. Uh, and this this play is a, a hilarious comic satire. So the laughter is itself a really essential part of the experience of playing it. So that was an interesting thing to try to navigate. But I think it was helpful that uh, we all had experience doing it on stage um, that helped inform sort of the moments where we typically would get a laugh or something like that, um, even though we, in the playing of it, we would have that in the back of our minds. One of the words I've been using to think about shifting a play from a stage to um, an audio format, I've been using the word transpose a lot um, because, you know, there are things you have to do to kind of make it fit in a new key or um, like in a new uh, a new state. And so I'm wondering if there have been shifts 
that you had to make in order to interpret the script um, successfully um, in this setting in an, in an audio only mode, um, you know, and, and have those shifts changed the play for you in any way? Or I guess to be more precise, has it changed your experience of the story the play wants to tell? There's sort of two questions that I was trying to address with this version of it. The first is, if you're going to experience this play in an uh, audio-only way, how are you going to translate what had originated as a stage production? Um, there are like sight gags that you have to ch shift, that there's like uh, visual information that is going to need to be uh, done through sound cues only or through uh, slight shifts in dialogue to help people to visualize what's happening. So there's like a kind of practical matter of like, how do you translate it? And then I think that there's also just this question of like, where are we in terms of uh, our relationship with China right now? And in terms of my own kind of conception around uh, Asian American identity in uh, 2016 versus 2020, the biggest sort of elephant in the room is uh, how do you address COVID and, um, and the kind of the Asian American and Chinese implications of COVID itself. So that was enormously fruitful to me to look at the play again with new eyes and try to piece through where we're at politically and keep it fresh. The other thing that changes too is access to the play. Uh, you know, that if you're not in Boston uh, or if you would otherwise be, you know, inhibited by the ticket price or just a willingness or comfort level with coming to the building or whatever it is, uh, you now have access to the play at the comfort of your own home, at your schedule, you know, in your time frame, uh, and at you know, an affordable price, which I think is really exciting to open up the story to a whole host of a larger audience. Uh, that, feel, that felt really exciting to me when I heard the Huntington starting to talk about doing this project. I was uh, very excited to jump in on this project, especially because uh, I'm the only one uh, from this process who didn't do the show live at the Huntington. I was in the uh, the West Coast cast that did it at La Jolla. And if we're just talking about the differences between doing it live uh, in front of an audience as opposed to doing it on a podcast or an audio play, um, Maritz actually helped me a lot figuring out how to make, I play three different characters in this um, and trying uh, to find a way to make them audibly distinct and different. Um, because I know that in our production in La Jolla, my characters were very visually different. Uh, they were dressed differently. Reggie had a wild wig. And so like a lot of that work was done for me and I could put all three characters, though different vocally, but in a place in my voice that was uh, safe and sustainable for eight shows a week for the month and a half that we did it. Um, this was a little bit different. I had to pitch uh, Russ the Bus slightly higher in my register in a way that might be a little harder to sustain for a show that goes for a, eight shows a week for a long time, but I could record it that way. He has like maybe even a little more of a cartoonish vibe to him, um, which I think is really who that guy is. Uh, which was a, a fantastic like level of freedom that I got to experience doing this uh, as an audio play. Again, this play is very uh, has a lot of energy and is uh, <laughs> sort of has big energy. And so, in the playing of it on stage, we sort of try to embody that through our maniacal physical behavior. <laughs> um, but then the task became 
to try to translate that and try to communicate sort of the bigness of that energy through the vocal performance and, you know, trying to underline certain words or lift certain words and um, or trying to do that with tempo and rhythm and stuff like that. And it felt quite seamless in a way in terms of process, just because I feel like that's also how we were working in the rehearsal room uh, to begin with. I feel like I want the opportunity now to do it live again because <laughs> I've learned so much about the storytelling of this play Same. by by being forced to just do it with our voices that I feel like now I could make some of those visual jokes pop <laughs> even more because I could back it up with some more of the audible uh, storytelling of it. So let's bring it back. Let's have a revival, y'all. <laughs> that's not up to you. That's up to AstraZeneca. <laughs> Unless we found some like big amphitheater somewhere. Outdoor amphitheater. I'm in full support of, of bringing it back. I'm just going to put that out there. So, um, Mike, just about the like genesis of Tiger Style as a play. When did you sit down and begin working with this idea and how did it morph into what has now been, you know, multiple productions and now in multiple formats? How long has that journey been and what have been its stops along the road? Yeah, uh, Tiger Style um, was uh, a very long time in coming and uh, I think that it uh, came about because I felt really boxed in um, by early well-meaning mentors that were encouraging me to like write about my heritage or write about my family and not feeling like I had a way to do that exactly, uh, it, at least in a way that like matched up with their sort of expectations of what that meant. I began the play at Juilliard. A couple of things coalesced, but I think one of the biggest was that um, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother came out, which I still haven't read, but I was absorbing the backlash to that book in the way that people were uh, critiquing it and saying that kids that are raised in, in this way with like really disciplinarian parents like will all end up hating their parents or killing each other and uh, and I was like well I haven't I, I love my parents and we've, nobody's nobody's uh, died because of this so uh, I have like a unique window on this aspect of um, of Asian American culture that I could write about authentically that's like not like a sort of immigrant story about like I um I, I, I immigrated to America and I don't know what it means because it's like I was born here and I'm third generation in. Um, so I started writing the play at Juilliard and it went to the O'Neill and uh, it had its uh, world premiere at the Alliance in Atlanta in 2015. And then the next year, a uh, separate production of it was done at La Jolla Playhouse. And like right after that, the most of the cast from the Alliance production uh, did it at Huntington. And... I think that like not every play gets the benefit of like these multiple tries, but it's so important if, if, if you are ever in a position to be able to continue working on a play that you keep hammering away at it and have different cities and different audiences respond to it because uh, what people were reacting to in Atlanta or uh, in Connecticut was totally different than what people were reacting to in San Diego or in Boston. I think that like those various refractions and the regionality of the refractions was really crucial to sort of cementing it. And now with Huntington coming back and asking to do an audio version of it, like I'm able to look at it again and uh, think through just like how have my politics evolved and what do we need to hear right now? Awesome, that's great. Marta, I wanna bring you into this conversation because we had talked about how doing it as an audio play, you've got the, you're listening it through headphones, right? And like what um, sound does when it's in your ears. And uh, Charles mentioned how 
intimate some of these performances have become as a result of it just being through sound. And I'm wondering for you, as you were like, you know, as you're directing this group of actors that you know really well and have really great relationships with, how is it for you kind of like to help them pitch it just? Well, I don't know. I don't know if people who don't have the stage show to compare it to might listen to this group of lunatics and decide that it's an intimate experience. But um, there's there's definitely, uh, you know, it, uh, the, as we've ever, all the actors are physically recording this from their own closets. I suppose there is a kind of intimacy that we're letting you in on. But I also think that, you know, it is a more intimate experience to listen to something through audio when you have your ear pods in, your AirPods or whatever they're called, and and you're um, just hearing the voices. And as these guys say, you don't have a large physicality, and you're not trying to reach the back of the house with your voice. You are just in a conversation with someone who's right there. They they can just really be talking to each other, even if the stakes are heightened, even if their emotions are heightened, or whatever it is. Uh, and there is a focus on language and the rich language that Mike is so genius at creating that I think does let this be front and center in a great way. You know, I think the challenge for us when we did it on stage is how do you create a visual world that can both support the rich text that Mike's giving us and the broad satire of it without trying to compete with it, uh, without trying to overshadow it but that will allow this weird place called China that they go to in the second act uh, and then the podcast version, episode three and four, um, how does that phantasmagoria of China sort of match this strange Southern California that we're living in in, in act one? And, uh, and so that we feel like we're in the same play. But what happens in an audio experience, again, is, you know, the audience's imagination becomes the set designer. Uh, you know, we can give you some music cues, we can give you some sound cues that might help set the stage, but the rest of it is existing just in your mind and whatever you think the actors are doing. So I'm going to be nerdy for a second. Um, I've spent a lot of time studying like early English, early modern English drama, so Shakespeare and all his friends, and there are lines in the text about how people would go to hear a play. And it strikes me that all of you um, were like, you know, kind of back in a different mode of like how we take in um, stories again. And, it, and it's really kind of lovely to think about all that. Um, I will say that one of the things that I'm super interested about is um, I'm, I'm coming at you, John, with this question. <laughs> uh -oh. Coming at you. Um, so I've, I've been thinking about this because when in so for those who may not have seen the stage production, um, it is quite visually bold. It's big. It's broad. It, it pops. And you and you, the actor who plays your sister, um, Jennifer, the two of you are always together. I mean, I'm always wondering what about this, you know, um, socially distanced production of drama when you're not in the room with your main scene partner. Um, Jennifer and Albert, they live together, they travel together, they are going on this um, freedom tour together, and yet you're recording this apart. What has that been like um, to, to hmm. do without your sister, without riding you know, with you by your set? That's a great question. I have been uh, doing a few sort of... Um, uh, virtual Zoom uh, readings uh, during this time. And it's been a really frustrating <laughs> experience to not be in the same physical space with with the actors and the 
director and and or playwright um that's a that's been a challenge but for this i think it was really amazing to have had the opportunity to do the production um in our case in rebo and my case we've done it twice before and so having had that opportunity to do it twice um in a fully realized production on stage i think that afforded us uh a very rich sort of history of working together and um in fact, building this sort of sibling relationship, which we've kind of um, taken beyond the walls of the theater. <laughs> and we have this this kind of very specific, fun um, uh, sibling relationship now. And so that's definitely helped uh, for this process because just hearing her voice, um, I feel a connection with her. And that's been built over the years that we've worked on the play. And then also because we've both done it together, when we speak these words and are, are in these scenes again, there's a sense memory that, that sort of naturally happens anyway. It's, it's stored in the body. And so I feel like I'm right there with her because I'm hearing her come back at me. And I, I, I felt uh, connected with her even though we were apart, which was, which was great. And that's the gift of being able to have done the production already. So just having her in those scenes and hearing her in my ear was very uh, evocative on its own. And so I felt really connected to her. I also just wanted to say <laughs> that um, that Mike's writing has such a beautiful rhythm to it that jumping in with a cast that I hadn't performed live with before still felt like I knew exactly what I was getting into. When it's comedy, it's all about the rhythm. It's all about the timing. When there's a tech aspect that's like unavoidable, <laughs> like how do you kind of keep the room together when you know there's going to be this thing that's going to get in the way? Uh, well, I think you have to have faith in the editing process, and Val and Palmer have been amazing in the editing process. You know, there's something about Zoom and communicating over the internet that, uh, that you know, that there's an almost imperceptible lag between our communication. Your brain is constantly frustrated trying to look for social cues, look for physical cues, quite understand why the rhythm in our conversation is maybe slightly off or whatever, which is the same as what two actors do when they're trying to communicate with one another, is they're trying to understand how their banter works, what the energy between them is. Uh, and uh, that all shifts, e even though the internet is connecting us, there's still a slight delay. There's still a slight distance between us. So the editing process allows us to help correct for that, either by uh, tightening a lot of the dialogue or by giving the actors a chance to try it a couple different ways and then piecemeal performances together that uh, really hit all the different colors and beats and that kind of thing. In the rehearsal room, we're trying to construct something that the actors can replicate in some way again and again every night and continue to explore it. In this process, not unlike TV film, we are trying to explore all the options and get them all in the can, as it were, and then piece the best of all of that together. So what you're getting is, um, you know, the best of what we came up with on the day, which is fun and challenging in its own way. Something that's been uh, challenging that's not actually technological um, is that without an audience responding to lines like... Um, we have to kind of guess at what the rhythm is, which I just think is an interesting wrinkle because when you're in previews on a live performance, the audience tells you when you need to pause or you kind of 
nudge them to pause later, but there's like a definite dynamic going back and forth with the audience. And I think it's why in a lot of early TV comedy, there was like a live audience or there's like laugh tracks because they're sort of trying to capture that same rhythm too. This is how I feel about uh, anytime I see like NBC presents a live musical of whatever. If, if there's not an audience, it's like what Moritz was talking about, this like uncanny valley of like, I know that those that joke is funny and I know that they're pausing appropriately, but somehow they're playing to a room that there isn't an audience in and I'm on my couch and I feel this like strange disconnect. And like, even though the rhythm makes sense on paper, it doesn't land just right. This is much more like a movie or a TV show that we have worked on, rehearsed, recorded, and then it will be edited so that it flows smoothly with the audience in mind. But I always have the frustration of these like Zoom plays that we do. It's like doing a live musical with no audience. It's constantly a frustration. Um, it's like screaming into the void. Yeah. It's ter terrifying. I mean, sometimes literally screaming <laughs> into the void. Um, this I, is I far more this satisfying. This gets uh, sponsored by Zoom and we do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sponsored by Zoom and NBC presents the I'm music so man. I'm so frustrated by this. Sponsored by Zoom. <laughs> I, I hope we're sponsored by the void. <laughs> that, was a, that was an example of a lag. <laughs> that my inner soul panicked for a second. I was like, well, I guess that joke wasn't funny. <laughs> and then I got, then you guys were gracious enough to give me a pity laugh. And uh, I came out the other side. I think that's just your crew backing you up, Moritz. Um, all that, you know, intimacy and, and camaraderie you've built up over the courses of these productions. This has been going so well that I'm actually at my last question, I think. You were explaining before, Moritz, about having a couple of takes that you can weave together to make a fluid piece and so there is stuff that is really exciting about that right you're going to have this piece that's going to be accessible to so many people we're going to get to broaden our audience you can see it from anywhere you don't have there's no like barrier to entry which is really lovely but it, once this piece is set and mastered there is just this one version how do you know the joke works if the audience isn't there to laugh um how do you know a moment has landed um, if there isn't someone there to boost that up for you and, and with some sort of reaction. And the phrase that I heard from Mike was the tyranny of takes. There's no room for that ephemeral experience. Do you think that's necessary in order for this to be a piece of theater? I mean, it's still a play, it's an audio play, but do we think of it as theater um, in that sense or, or uh, is it not? I do, I do still think of it as theater, but I think that my experience of my own play is gonna be so inherently different than any audience uh, members because I'm, I'm just processing it in a different way than they are. Um, there's like the political and stylistic stuff that I wanna get across, but then like when I'm actually looking at the thing um, or experiencing it, I'm not really processing it on that level. So for me, like the interest that I have in theater is to this is going to be a pretty highfalutin metaphor and I'm not sure if it's going to cohere, but like, I, like essentially I've, I've like created a road and like, and there's any number of ways to traverse that road. And I will be surprised by the directions that an actor or that the director take. And um, sometimes an actor will do a scene differently or, or like land a joke slightly differently. And all of those feel to me like these wheelbarrow tracks that are along the road and like eventually go rut forms where the play is going to go, but like your wheelbarrow may stray here or there. 
And so when you have something that's recorded and you have to set all that in stone, I do feel like there's a tyranny of takes because not only are you choosing that and locking it, but also like if an actor gives you several different takes that all work, I don't envy <laughs> Moritz having to pick which one um, that, that he wants to freeze there because for me, the experience of seeing the play is about watching all these variations and seeing whether they still convey the entire project from night to night. It's not easy when you don't have an audience response, especially in a comedy. Um, you know, it's very apparent when something's not, when a joke doesn't work, you know, because the audience is telling you and there's no hiding from that. But I think what these guys are so great at, what, what I've always tried to do is just to try to create something that at the very least will make us laugh. Um, because if it can't even make us laugh, then, you know, what, you know, how dare we try to offer it up to anybody else? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's not an easy thing, to, you know, to sort of try to come up with something that will make a room full of very funny people break in some way. But um, Mike in his wheelbarrow or he has given us or his road metaphor, we can it's all a metaphor. play a, a, a live version of the game Frogger. And, uh, you know, get to level 99 with three lives left, at least, hopefully, maybe at least one life left. But we've had enough quarters to do it. So no high school student is going to know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Frogs don't, don't use everybody in my age is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> one of the things that I love most about sort of the form of theater is that it is different from night to night and that... Um, necessarily because the audience is different from night to night. And um, that makes it feel like a very um, alive art form. It's like a different organism every time out. Um, but being somebody that is sort of a perfectionist, as I am a child of immigrants, the, the idea of somebody sort of picking, cherry picking sort of great takes is very appealing to me. <laughs> to me, this is kind of a hybrid theater form. I'm endlessly fascinated when doing a, a play in a theater uh, as to how like the events of the world can just one day change the course of a play. You know, something happens in the news and all of a sudden a joke that was funny for the last three months is no longer funny and never will be again or won't be again for a year. The idea, the tyranny of takes things that Mike was talking about, like the idea that we're locked into a choice that will just live in perpetuity on the internet uh, scares me a little bit, but is mitigated by the fact that I can always be like, yeah, well, I gave them nine takes, you know, and that was just, they chose that. <laughs> so I can let myself off the hook. Yeah, it takes the onus off the actor, finally. <laughs> I'm wondering, we updated the play for um, for this moment set in November of 2019, um, as opposed to the production that happened in 2016. Are we worried there might be moments of that in the play? I mean, no spoilers, but is that something that we worry about? Or is this podcast meant to be like a bit of a time capsule um, in this crazy COVID moment we find ourselves in? I don't know that I'm going to have like a quick answer for that because I, it just feels like it's um, something that I ponder a lot in terms of like what subject matter should I choose that will stand the test of time. And like, I think that like, at the core of any uh, play that's worth anything has to be the meaty human issue and 
working your way through that. And I think that that will stand the test of time, regardless of whether like any individual jokes fall flat because of changing sensibilities or because of uh, changing reference points. I think what will remain constant is these uh, two uh, kids who had a very specific upbringing and trying to piece through that. And I think that like you're always going to have problems, blame your parents, try to find home and, you know, be confused and come out the end of it. Like, that's not going away. Yeah, that wheelbarrow feels universal. (laughs) This is maybe an answer to a slightly different question, but like in La Jolla, there was like a guy at a talkback who was like, I didn't understand why the one white guy had to be such a buffoon all the time the conversation that we got into was us was us being like, is this the first time that you've like not seen yourself accurately portrayed on stage? And he thought about it and was like, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one way of saying it. And I was like, well, let's all hope that in the next 10 to 15, 20 years, I hope it's faster than that, but uh, that we see more and more plays where, you know, it's not always the white man's experience that is preserved as accurate and everyone else plays the like other roles. So in that regard, like, yeah, I hope this play doesn't stand the test of time. I hope we move beyond that. This isn't like such a radical or uh, what a strange, interesting way of doing a play. This was awesome. I'm like, like really giddy right now. Thank you, Moritz. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, John. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exploring Tiger Style, hosted by Huntington Manager of Curriculum and Instruction, Regine Vital. Exploring Tiger Style is sound engineered by Valentin Frank. This episode features Mike Liu, Moritz von Stupnagel, Nate Miller, and John Norman Schneider. To hear the Tiger Style audio play and more of Exploring Tiger Style, And to donate in support of programs like these, please visit HuntingtonTheater.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us wherever you found this series. Thank you for listening.